As you're listening to the following music selections, adjust the volume, bass, and treble controls to suit your tastes. episode of Android's Dungeon. It's feeling lonely in here. 1830. Dune. Other stuff. It's gonna be a weird one, folks. Bear with me. Welcome to CFRU 93.3 FM, broadcasting out of the University of Guelph, Guelph, Ontario campus. <clears throat> you can listen to us online at CFRU.ca, or you can go on your digital cable box and find a channel there. I don't know which one. Don't ask me. I can never remember, because I don't really, I don't even have cable. Check us out on Twitter, 80 Radio CFRU, email androidsdungeon at CFRU.ca, or on Insta, dude. Check us out on Insta, Androids Dungeon CFRU. That is the Instagram handle. Just me right now. So that means I'm not going to talk for too much by myself because nobody wants to hear me just drone on by myself unless you want to hear my wacky political views in which grab a cup of coffee and sit down because it could get interesting. But I'm not going to do that mostly because I want to keep my show... Uh, and I think you want me to keep the show, too, because this is high-quality entertainment. High-quality entertainment that's free. But you know what? It's not free to produce this entertainment. The station's got costs. And if you want to support CFRU and you want to keep this thing going, keep the good times rolling, you should consider donating. So if you go to our website, there's an option to donate. Just find it. Click on it. Throw some cash at us. Maybe it can uh, afford some fancy new chairs that don't squeak every time you move them or some microphone stands that don't uh, creak and groan like, uh, I don't know, a rusty Terminator sneaking towards you. <clears throat> Most shows start off with what have you been playing recently, and since I'm the only one here, I'm just going to let you know. It was a big gaming day on Saturday. Um, we finally got out on the table... Our first 18xx experience, and that was 1830 by Francis Tresham. This is the Mayfair edition, the reprint, that, uh, according to rumors, Tresham himself despised. And I heard a story once that somebody tried to get him to sign a copy of it, and he was all gung-ho until he saw it was the Mayfair edition, and he politely refused to sign it because this game had his, has his name on it as a designer, uh, but he was deeply unhappy with either his his treatment during the process or what they did what they did to his boy. Look what they did to him, because and and when you play it, I haven't even played the other variants of it, but I can tell right away they did a number on it. So anyway, 1830 is uh, not the first. I think 1829 may have been the first. Somebody can argue with me about that, but it is maybe the most famous of the 18xx series of games. For those who don't know, 18xx is a genre of board games. It's its own beast, and you can best describe them as heavy economic 
simulations typically revolving around um, operating and owning train companies. And typically the games are split up into two main sections. The first part is shares, owning shares and manipulating the stock market. And the second part is based around operating these trains. And that usually revolves purchasing trains, sending them on routes, laying stations, putting down new track, and uh, maintaining your trains in some cases. Anyway, there are so many versions of these games floating around up there that if you go into BoardGameGeek and you click on uh, 1830 and you look at similar games or just type 18 uh, into the search box, you will start to fall down a hole. Tons of these games, absolutely tons of them. But again, 1830 is kind of the... Um, it might be the most popular or the biggest of the bunch. And again, we're new to the series, so somebody can argue with me about that. But as far as I know, it is the big one, or at least the, the most uh, popular of the bunch. So 1830 uh, is set in the 19th century, and you are Robert Barron. And that means that you are playing somebody who's starting a train company, and, uh, and you know what? You don't even have to start a train company. I misspoke. But basically, you are taking on the role of an investor in the time period, and you want to end the game with the most amount of money possible. And the game begins, and uh, to get things out of the way, we played it with six players. And uh, there are some minor changes at different player accounts. But uh, the game starts with an auction involving private companies. And the private companies are exactly what they sound like. They are small train companies um, that provide an income every round, and also may or may not provide special bonuses or powers um, as the game goes on. So you start off, and it's considered to be something they call a waterfall auction. We actually screwed this up when we played it because I was confused to the style of it uh, because I don't know any other games that kind of do it this way. But the style of auction is you lay the private companies from start to finish, uh, from cheapest to most expensive in a line. And starting with the person to the left of uh, the banker, they get to place a bid. So they can either buy the first company, which is the least expensive one, right up uh, for face value there. Or they can place a bid on another company down the line, and their bid has to be at least $5 more than the uh, face value of that company. And what happens is, is as you go down, what happens and people may place multiple bids on some of these companies, and some companies may not get anything on them. So eventually, one of the companies, uh, the cheapest one, is going to get sold. And when it's sold, you drop down. And if nobody has bid on that company, then you go around again, and people have to bid on it. If one person has bid on it, they win it instantly, and you move on from there. If multiple people have bid on it, then you end up in a an auction just involving those players. And that's where they can go back and forth and really kind of figure out how much the other person wants to pay for it, or at least make them pay for it. The auction was a little confusing to us because none of us really understood the value of these companies. Um, people picked up the cheap ones, people picked up, well, basically they were all sold. Everyone ended up with a private company. And you don't even, I, I don't think you have to have a private company. Uh, some people may never buy one, some people may get two. Uh, but as it stood, everyone got one. And uh, I ended up with the C and uh, or the B and O, excuse me, the Baltimore and Ohio, which is the most expensive one. Um, and my bonus power for getting that was that uh, when the Baltimore Ohio, as soon as I get that private company, I get two shares in the Baltimore Ohio public company, and I'm going to get that in a second. So anyway, after everyone has the private companies, you move into the 
public company section. And this is the stock manipulation phase. So on your turn, you are allowed to buy exactly one share in a company and you can sell as many shares as you want, except in the first round. The first round, you're not allowed to sell anything. So you have all these shares out from these public companies, which are totally separate. And as it is, none of these companies are publicly floated yet. That means that they don't have the capital needed to operate. So all these shares are sitting out in them, and there are nine certificates and 10 shares total for each company. And these shares sit there waiting for you to buy them at IPO prices. Now, what's the price, you ask? Well, it depends. Whoever buys the first share has to buy the president's certificate, and that's equal to two. So you buy a share, let's say, in um, the Baltimore and Ohio, or you're given it in my case. As soon as you purchase that, you set the par price, and the par price can move from $67 up to 100 on this set chart that's near the top of the game board. And you choose how much all the IPO shares are going to be worth. After you set that, you have to pay exactly what you've set the par price at times two because you're buying two shares with your president's certificate. In my case of the BNO, the bonus is you get two shares of the BNO, basically the president's certificate, for free. You don't have to pay for it. So you have the option to set the price super high or set it low. By setting the price low, you are going to get more people buying into your company theoretically because you need 60% of the shares sold in order for your company to be considered floated. And what that means is that there's enough money, are there enough shares in the wild for the bank to, I guess, inject funding into your company? What happens is you get 10 times whatever the par price is into your company treasury. Now, this is an important thing to keep in mind is that treasuries and personal income are always kept separate. So your train company has its own treasury and your own and your you as a player have your own treasury as well and never shall the two meet except under very dire circumstances, which I'll get to in a moment as well. So after a company's been floated, whoever has the most shares in the company, um, and if there's a tie, it's whoever had the president's share to begin with, is considered to be the operator of the company or the president of it. And in that time, what happens is you get to run your company. And every round of operations starts with the same. You lay track, you can put down stations, and you can run your trains. And then you finish it by buying trains. And that's the gist of the game. As you move on, though, some things change. So the types of trains you can buy are always limited at the beginning. You can only buy at level two trains. And what that means is that when you run a train, it can only go to at most two stops. And on the board, there are all these different cities and locations, and each one has a little number written under them. And that indicates when you run your train, how much money you get for that, uh, that route. You can only run the same spot once. You can never double up on track. So if you have two trains, you can't run the same route over and over. You'd have to run a separate one. And that's where the tile laying goes in because you want to build routes that are profitable and going to big cities because those are the routes you're going to make money from. But when if you only have a train that's worth two, it can't get there. So you got to wait until the two trains are gone. And what that means is that there's a bunch of, all the trains are train cards. And initially you can't even run it. You have to buy it. So you have to use your company treasury to purchase trains. So you take whatever money from your company and put it back into the bank and you add one of these trains to your company charter, which is basically its player board. After that, you're allowed to make as many runs as you can support via trains. So if your company has one train and it's considered a two train, you can hit up two stops. And you have to do uh, the most profitable one. You can't uh, deliberately do uh, un the unprofitable routes, I think. I could be wrong on that one, but I could swear that's one of the rules. Anyway. Eventually, all the two trains will be gone, 
and then you'll get to sell three trains. And every as soon as the three trains come up, you move them to the next phase of the game, and different things are available. Now you can lay, or upgrade, excuse me, uh, yellow tiles to green tiles, or you can put green tiles on top of baked-in yellow spots on the board, which is are some spaces on the game board that you couldn't use yellow tiles for, because you have yellow tiles, green tiles, and brown tiles. Green tiles start to make things worth more money, and there are more complicated uh, track lane, uh, routes on those tiles. And ultimately, brown tiles are the most valuable, and they have tons of variation in the tracks you can put down. <clears throat> It's a little complicated. It might be tough to visualize. And God help you, it was very difficult even reading the book. The manual I found was absolutely trash. Um, and it didn't help that the classic rules are what you want to play, but they're at the back and mixed in. So they have their version of the game. They say setup is virtually the same. And then you go to the classic section, you need the changes in the rules and all these other little things. So very annoying. My advice is to just download the 1830 classic rules and use those for reference because those are the ones you want. And there might even be some living rules somebody has printed out where they fixed what's wrong with it as far as they're concerned. Anyway, a bit of a digression there. So what happens is as you enter new tra uh, phases of the game, other things happen. So after all the three trains are gone, all of a sudden the four trains come up. And when the four trains come up, this is where stuff gets really interesting because now, um, and I missed a step here. So the private companies... One of the main appeals of them is that you can sell these private companies to any public company. And ideally what you want to do is if you're the president of one of these public companies, you want to buy the private company that you own as a player. And you can pay up to two times the price of that company. So in a sense, you're looting this company by selling it one of your own companies for this drastically inflated price. And from... Uh, and now that company basically holds on to that and it makes whatever income it would have gained from that private company. But come to the fourth round, private companies all go away. They're gone. Additionally, what happens in the fourth round is something you experience called train rusting. And train rusting happens in, I think, virtually all these 18xx games. But 1830 in particular is known for its train rush. And that means people deliberately buy up trains in order to screw over other players because you can force them into an uncomfortable position. Because when I say rust, I mean as soon as the fourth train comes up, all your two trains are obsolete. Uh, in the game world, imagine them just rusting away because they've been on the track for so long, they're old and nobody likes them and they're useless. So they go away. Now all of a sudden you've got companies that if you haven't buying trains, if you only had twos at the time, you don't have any trains anymore. So that means you've got to buy a train at the end of your turn. There are two issues with this. If your company cannot run a route, or if your company is operated and you're the president, as the president of the company, you have to buy a train. So if your company has money, great. All you do is you lose a round of income and you slide back a bit on the stocks. If your company, though, has been reckless with spending and can't afford to buy a train, you're in two, you have to do two things, or you have to make a choice. You can either buy a train from another player for a minimum of a dollar, and if you have a second company, you can sell that one a train if you want, and that's a very viable strategy in some situations, apparently. But if nobody's going to sell you a train on the cheap, and you can't afford to buy one from the bank using your company money, you have to dip into your personal money. And that's where things get nasty, and it didn't come up in our game. I'm going to spoil things right away. Nobody was forced to buy out of pocket in our, our game. And we also didn't really finish it either. We called it early because it was dragging on a little bit, and it, uh, people were, we, we, it was a learning game. We all kind of got what we were getting at. Um, 
But in this case, what happened, or in another example would be, if you can't afford it, uh, or if your company doesn't have the cash, you have to pay out of pocket. And if you don't have the money in front of you, you got to start selling shares. And you have to sell shares until you can afford to buy a train. And theoretically, if you don't have any, enough shares to afford the trains either, then you're bankrupt and the game ends right then and there. So the last thing I'll touch on is the stock market aspect. So like I said, you can buy and sell shares. You would think, though, if you buy a share, it's going to raise the price of the shares. 1830 doesn't care about buying of shares. It's only the selling. So if you sell shares, what happens is, is that train, your value, or the stock of that company or, uh, that you just sold plummets. So you're allowed to sell any amount of shares, which means you can theoretically tank a company with some malicious selling, or multiple people can do it up to uh, just around the table if they see the writing on the wall there, which makes sense. Um, you have this grid that all the that represents the share prices. So when you run trains, you can do two things. You can either withhold revenue, which means all the money from that run stays in the company treasury. If you do that, the stock slides left one because it's unappealing to shareholders. If you decide to pay dividends, which means for every share out there, you take whatever that wrote generated in cash and uh, you divide it by 10 and each person gets that. Um, if you pay dividends, for gets that, uh, gets that times whatever, how many certificates I have. If you pay dividends, the company moves right on the stock market because that's considered to be good for the shareholders. Um, eventually, you may make your company all the way to the right, and there's different sort of layers of stuff. If it hits a wall, it always will move up and becomes even more valuable. And can I think the ultimate share price is $350 a share, which is incredible. <laughs> not, not quite Tesla money, considering today's prices of it, but uh, getting there. And uh, that's the, the gist of the game. You keep going until the bank runs out, and the bank is $12,000, or a player goes bankrupt. At the beginning of the game, you're going to look at that bank and say, wait, how long is this game going to go for? Because your runs are going to be pathetic. You're going to make 40 bucks, 50 bucks maybe. But all of a sudden, the routes get longer. All of a sudden, you're doing double and triple operating rounds. All of a sudden, you're buying some super expensive trains. Um, the diesels are $1,100 each, and they have unlimited routes they can hit. Um you can and money starts to really fly out of the bank very quickly. It's kind of a case like food chain magnet in that you look at the bank, there's tons of cash there, uh, and you think, oh my god, this game's going to take forever. And then all of a sudden, as soon as the big buying and selling rounds start to happen, you go, oh man, the game goes way quicker than I thought. So it starts off small and just amps up very quickly. So 1830, that's it in a nutshell. I probably screwed up a couple rules or not. Is it fun? I had a blast. I had a really, really good time with this. It's taken forever to get it on the table, and I'm happy it finally happened, and I'm happy with the player count too. The rules were very annoying at first, and I was very frustrated, um, but it, because it's not that complicated. But it just certain things just didn't make sense to me. The two things I'll elaborate on, just in case anyone who's listening wants to play 18xx one time or 1830 so that you don't fall down the same trap that I did. The two things that were confusing me a lot were the wording on trains, uh, cal calculating routes. So when you calculate a route, calculate a route, you have to start, end, or cross over one of your station tokens. Basically saying that this is, uh, you own this track at some point, or this is where you supply up or get passengers. 
it felt kind of weird when we were doing three trains or four trains that you're able to start a route in the middle of nowhere and as long as you've passed by one of your stations that that was right that or that was legal so i clarified that and it is correct so if you're playing the game you can start anywhere as long as you touch one of your stations at any point during your calculation of routes it becomes legal so don't worry about it looking weird or feeling weird because it did for us, but it's it's right. The second thing that confused me was track upgrading and track laying. There are a couple of spots on the board where, you, where it will require certain types of tiles to be laid on it, and those are clearly marked. But there are other ones on there when it came to upgrading tile that when I was looking at it, I was like, hold on, is this a double city tile? Or is this a single tile with two stations? The correct answer is it's still a single tile, but what it does is when you upgrade to, to green, you're allowing another player to be able to put their own station token down there as well at some point. So you're by upgrading tile to make it more valuable, you're also opening it up for your opponents to possibly angle in and start to edge in on your routes. And those were the two main things that I was kind of uh, confused about by the end, still at the end of the game. In general, though, I could see how this become a very, very mean game in the hands of people who know what they're doing because you can trash people's stocks and leave them basically holding the bag of a company that's barely functional and broke, especially as the train rustings coming on that can't afford to buy new trains and it's going to have to come out of your own pocket. I, that's the part of the game that I'm really looking forward to exploring in the future of people playing defensively. We played all really nicely. Uh, for the most part, the only company that really got sold hard was um, my good friend Joel's, uh, the Boston, uh, Boston, Maine? I can't remember. Uh, Boston something train company. He did really well and ran it really well, and the stock was really high up there. But people wanted the capital to invest in other companies. So people ravaged the company's stock price and dropped it down three or four levels, um, which caused it to go from fairly high up on the chart down to not super low. It wasn't bad company by any stretch. But the interesting thing is the end of the game, all a lot of the companies kind of finished around the same area. And which I was curious considering how long some of them took to get going. But it seemed fairly easy if you were paying dividends for companies just to keep climbing. And I think with more uh, paying attention of trashing stock prices um, and really buying up trains all the time, according to some strategy, you should always be buying trains just to really put the heat on people. Um, the game could be more uh, more aggressive. But the interaction was fun. People were talking to each other. You cared about the roots. You cared about the money. We used poker chips, and that felt good to use as well. So, 1830, first game, started at 10, finished at about 3.30. I'd say it took us an hour and a half to really get going. So, all things considered, with some of the lengths of the, some of these bigger games that we've played, it wasn't bad, and everyone had a good time that I'm aware of. If they were lying to me, I appreciate them being kind, although I wish they didn't lie to me. Anyway... Hopefully we can get it on the table again soon. Hopefully we can get other ones on the table as well. But this is a whole world that's been opened up to us. So, musical break. We'll be back in a second. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to CFRU 93.3 FM. What you just heard was Teeth from Worried About Satan's album, Blind Tiger. Came out in 2019. Really, really cool little band. Uh, unsure what their story is. I heard them, uh, I've, I came to them from Bandcamp, like so many of these uh, artists I'm discovering lately. There's something, someone who knows more about music can probably describe their sound a bit better, but there's, they are from the UK, or he is from the UK, and it's a very distinct sort of uh, UK electro, um, is that a right term even? I'm going to say electro anyway, sound or vibe to it that kind of reminds me of um, some late 90s, early 2000s, maybe even mid 90s sort of, um, uh, I want to say like massive attack, attack or I think Portisheads are, are they're Yanks, but uh, just this echoey, cold sort of European style to it that uh, kind of is sitting with me oddly, especially on that album, uh, Blind Tiger, which is, I think, if I could describe it as slightly more morose than some of their other stuff, but um, or his other stuff. I can't remember if it's more than one person or not, but really remarkable stuff. Bunch of albums out there. They're all good, so check them out. So before the musical break, we were talking about, I was talking about 1830. The second game of the event was a round of Dune. And this is our, my third game of Dune. 
and uh, we played it again at six because I think you can, it, even though you could play it with five and even four, I guess. Um, I'm, I think the box might even say two, but don't believe that is a filthy lie if I've ever heard one. Um, this is my third game, and I replayed uh, the Bene Gesserit, Gesserit uh, the same faction I played as when we went to Toronto the one time, and that was kind of haunting me a bit. I wanted a second crack at it. So, Joel also played the Harkonnen again, uh, which I was a little disappointed in because uh, I think you wanted to move on to something else or try something differently, but everyone kind of picked the what factions that they wanted, and we went from there. So, six players, Dune... The game ended in round six this time. So I think as we've been playing, the round game end has been dropping uh, significantly. And I think it drops, uh, the game ends quicker with newer players than it does with veterans. Um, I think people who know what they're doing or grasp the game state better, have a better grasp on how to end the game and can watch out to avoid it or accelerate it if it's in their favor. And by that, I mean, if they're an alliance, they know how to, you know, this is a time to strike or this is the trick here. Anyway, long story short, uh, a Harkonnen Emperor Alliance ended the game round six uh, on the very last turn possible after a Fremen betrayal that I couldn't believe because the Fremen got betrayed. uh, uh, And by betrayed, I mean their leader turned out to be a traitor twice in pivotal moments. And it was absolutely flabbergasting that the, the poor luck (laughs) that, uh, uh, that the, the Fremen player experienced because I thought they had it. I thought everything was carefully locked down. The, it was a sloppier game. And I was disappointed with the Bene Gesserit. I didn't get in a fight once the entire game, and I only used my voice ability once, too. The Bene Gesserit are so poor, it's very, very difficult to make ground with them because unless you've got an ally who's throwing you cash and really propping you up, it's very difficult because people are going to be hovering, hoovering up the spice like crazy, and you are not going to be... You don't have the resources to get into fights because the in order to bring units not only out of the tanks, but onto the board is very expensive for you because you'll get, even though you get one unit every time somebody else ships down, they're all over the map, which is borderline useless for you. So the only thing you can truly sort of hope to do is just play spoiler. And if you're lucky, you can strike at a good time and maybe take over a territory here and there. Um, But it's very tricky, I think, to really... um, affect the game state in an obvious way, which is sort of what they're they're supposed to do. So for people who don't know, uh, the Bene Gesserit, their whole thing is that you secretly pick a turn in a player who's going to win. A player is going to win and what turn they're going to win. And your whole goal in that game is either to win the game outright, which you can do normally just like anyone else via an alliance or by yourself, or you can try to subtly manipulate the thing, uh, manipulate the game state so that your prediction comes true. So in this case, I felt like my my manipulating was very poor. I didn't have the right positioning to make it work. And um, I had one chance at the end to push the game to the next round. But when you're playing in the advanced version, which I highly recommend everyone do, because advanced is just how the game is meant to be played. Calling it advanced was a mistake. Um, But in the advanced rules, you need spice to power up every unit you've got. So keep that in mind because not only am I spice poor, which is the currency in the game, 
but I also have not been able to bid on treachery cards because I can't afford them. And uh, that means that if I get into a fight, not only are my units weak, they're about half power compared to my opponents, if they've got the spice, which they did, but my ability to affect their leader or defend myself is neutered. There's no way for me to just knock them off the field and take care of that because that's the Bene Gesserit's number one ability is that um, you are always going to be able to defend yourself or you're always going to be able to um, kill their leader. Maybe, maybe in some other things now I think about it, but uh, assuming they don't Karama you. So that was my experience. Uh, the Atreides player had a pretty good time, I think. He was selling information like crazy. Sometimes a little too cheap. Sometimes he was trying to ask for too much, but he was really getting into it, and I think he had a good time. The Atreides player had a miserable game, though, in the sense that I think a couple of poor decisions and uh, some bad luck here and there ended up foiling him pretty badly. Uh, the Spacing Guild felt a little ineffectual. It was his first time playing as well, and I think he was still trying to figure things out, and I think he made a couple mistakes because uh, he could have played spoiler a lot better in this fight, and he should have dumped, dropped a bunch of units in and uh, tried to put a stop to some of these plans before they really started to move too much. The Fremen player wasn't being nearly aggressive enough. He should have been starting fights like crazy. And problem is he started fights at the wrong time when it was win or lose the game. And unfortunately, he got double betrayed uh, in two separate fights, like I was saying. And that's just it. That's game over in that fight. Because if you have the other person's traitor, you win the fight, guaranteed. Uh, Harkonnen player, I think, played an interesting game. It felt frustrating for Joel because he was having trouble bidding on treachery cards because I've never seen so much money being spent on the treachery cards. And that was a way to do it because the Harkonnen player couldn't afford it. He was getting outbid everywhere. And if the Harkonnen player can't get treachery cards he's going to have a much harder time winning these fights against people. And that meant that, uh, and that's a source of income for him. So that meant he has to chase Spice like crazy, and that puts him in a position where he has to move around a bit. The Emperor played a game that I, I to be honest, I, was, I don't think uh, she was doing tons with it. Uh, she was getting a lot of advice from the Harkonnen player, and I think ended up, like, she obviously won with in the alliance, but I didn't see any big moves from her. Um, I think she mostly just uh, did exactly what you would do or what you're supposed to do with, in those situations, just dump a bunch of soldiers onto the, the map and just move in and hold on to a couple of uh, key locations to win the game. But in general, it was a good game of Dune. I had a good time, and it went quickly. Uh, by Dune standards, at least, because sometimes the game can drag. And I was I was disappointed I didn't get my prediction. Again, I was off by one round. I was this close. But at the same time, I was happy the game was over and never had a good time. So in the future, would I change anything? I think I might try another faction at this point. Um, I still want to crank out a win with the uh, Bene Gesserit. I feel like I'm, I'm close to figuring it out. It's, it's getting a feel for how people play and what sort of moves. And I really want to work harder on playing spoil. And I think that means that I have to work harder on getting treachery cards, making people not want to start fights with me. And that means that uh, I need the treachery cards in order to do that. And the Bene Gesserit aren't victims of worthless cards either because they turn into Karama cards, even though Karama cards aren't as good for the Bene Gesserit as other factions who get neat powers. So all in all, Dune, good game, still really enjoy it. Um, 
I think it the problem with it is like any other big game or a game with a lot of strategy is it takes a lot of sussing out of little mechanics. Otherwise, it can quickly bog down into who had more units sent here, who was able to send the spice here, and it's kind of like a, a version of Risk where you're just sending units against each other, trying to hold on to at least one, and hoping that you've got the right trader or you have the right card to throw a wrench into the mix. Anyway. Pick it up. Inexpensive game. If you are a gamer. I don't mean that in like a cheesy colloquial inter- internet sense. I mean this Dune is a gamer's game. And it, there's a reason why it's hung around for a while. Same thing as 1830. And I'd like to compare them for a second because Dune, they're both fairly old games. Uh, I think 1830 is older though. Um, they have what I really am looking for in games these days. And they're, and they're on very ends of the spec- various ends of the spectrum. Dune is Ameritrashy in that there's tons of conflict, tons of take that, tons of, oh, come on, that's nonsense. How'd you get away with that? That's crazy. Oh, I lost because of randomness. Dune has lots of randomness, has lots of excitement, and it builds stories through the, that randomness. You can try to mitigate it. You can try to expect it. The Atreides player should know exactly where things are going at all times because he knows all the cards that have been auctioned off and he should know where they're going. The Bene Gesserit should know or be able to command a player to do something on their turn if you're fighting with them or if your ally is, so you're mitigating some of that randomness. The Emperor just brute forces this randomness by having so much money and just trying to zerg rush and just beat down the doors of his foes. The Spacing Guild has to play a little more economically and try to move around and play spoiler and get out. They're kind of uh, shock troops of sorts. And the Fremen is kind of a foil to the Emperor in the sense of they have a very similar style of game, but they're more mobile, and they don't have the money necessarily, but they've got the strength, and they're always coming back. They get the max regeneration of units onto the board for free every round. So the Fremen are everywhere, and they're very dangerous and powerful. 1830 has tons of interaction, but it's subtle through the um, it, through the passive-aggressive uh, trashing of another person's company, through the passive-aggressive buying up of trains and watching your opponents have to buy trains themselves, realizing that, oh God, if I let this go too long, I'm going to be stuck without them. And oh man, there's no money in my treasury. There's It is a economic dune (laughs) if that makes any sense and that all the combat is taking place on the stock market and on the board via passive aggressive building of rail lines and station tokens and whatnot but it can be just as mean not that i noticed the meanness as much in our game but you start to get a feel for it there are a couple of tastes of it and you can see how quickly things can kind of go south for you if you aren't being ruthless with acquiring cash and dumping stocks and buying up companies, uh, and giving people, leaving people holding the bag on uh, worthless companies. So, as as different as the games are, they both are what I am looking for these days, which is the high player interaction, and that's something that many games aspire to do, but have so much trouble doing, because. It's so easy just to dump mechanics onto the board and have players supposedly interact with each other. Like, oh, you can use this building. Oh, I can hand you a card or something. 
it's not until you're sitting there playing these games that you're intrigued by everything going on because you're invested in the game state. Even my favorite game, Mega Civ, Advanced Civ, Western Empires, the trading phase is the best part because everyone's interacting. When you're looking at the board, though, sometimes you don't care what's going on on the other side of the map. In your area, you care a little bit, and you definitely care what your neighbor is doing. Um, but it's a mix. And the passive-aggressive or the, the, the real nasty stuff comes through trades and building assets and kind of moving up there. But at the end of the day, you're still far, far more engaged in these games than you are in a lot of these middleweight, medium-worker Euros um, that are everywhere, in which you're just kind of staring at the board and putting things down and moving on. Even my beloved Feast for Odin is at times multiplayer solitaire. But if you're playing properly, there should be an absurd amount of blocking and meanness with regard to which spaces you can no longer get to, whether I want them or whether I know you need them more than I do, so I'm going to dump guys there just to, to mess with you. This, the subtle interactions between players is what I love about these two games. 1830 is, like I said, on the stock market and with the trains, and Dune is straight up throwing units at you. But it's in between. It's during the treachery cards where you're watching the Atreides player taking notes and offering to sell information. It's during the alliance phase, which, by the way, there were no alliances until, like, turn five in Dune, which it was crazy. Um, it kind of made the game a little dull, if I have to say one thing, is that... It, it left th uh, out this important element of the game, which is very critical, is the alliance of players and splitting of powers or, or, or addition of the other uh, faction's powers to your own and kind of gets makes things more interesting. Uh, because it showed up so late, it was kind of like, ah, kind of one and done sort of deal. And I was out of the spacing guild just for the hell of it. Neither of us really, you know, eh. I did take advantage of his, uh, but he had so much money too. So you think that should have solved my problems. I should have been buying up cards like crazy, but I think because he was new to the game and I wasn't being pushy enough. And also a lot of us were half in the bag at that point. So it was like, this isn't tournament Dune. Nobody cares. But there were a couple of mistakes made. I should have bought up treachery cards like crazy that round using the Spacing Guild's help. Anyway, <clears throat> the, the, the high player interaction games are the ones that you are going to look back on and say those were the fun games. And I'm not trying to say stuff that you love, like Concordia or Agricola or Kalis, and just go down the line, aren't fun games with that you can build f great stories out of, things like Viticulture and whatnot. I'm just saying they're bloodless compared to getting in experiences like 1830 and, and Dune and uh, Megasiv, because these are the games that build stories in these organic uh, methods that are fantastic you play these games and the stories are there and they they you talk about how the these betrayals you talk about the invasions you talk about uh, managing to steal a company from under somebody and prop it up two turns later with savvy investing and purchasing of things I don't hear these sorts of things happen too often in games like Carcassonne in games like, again, Viticulture, or Scythe, or um, whatever flavor of the month uh, game is out there. Even Root, I find, as popular as it was for a while, it just, it didn't have, it doesn't have the holding power of something, even though there's a lot of player interaction in that game, I think Pax Pamir is superior. If you actually play Pax Pamir, 
there's the player interaction in that game that is that is is built through these alliance systems where you're actually invested in propping up a faction. So all of a sudden it can go from a uh, straight up co- uh, competitive game to competitive competitive cooperative if let's say we're all invested in the Afghani faction winning and all of a sudden we're trying to prop this up and maybe there's one or two other players who don't want that to work and they're trying to prop up the the Russians or the Brits and you end up in this sort of all right I'm temporarily aligned with Joel this time against uh, against Kayla and Stefan because they are working against us and uh, and that can also lead to things where it's like, I'm pulling the ripcord and I'm joining those guys and you're left staying, saying, oh man, what happened? Similar to like something like 1830, you're left holding the bag on a bad company, a bad faction. Dune, you can be left holding a bad alliance. And that's sort of what happened with um, the Fremen and the Atreides is that the Fremen allied with the, the Atreides, but the Atreides basically got wiped off the board and were ineffectual, even though the Atreides Fremen Alliance is very powerful. Anyone allied with the Fremen is very powerful. Um, but uh, in this case, the, the the Atreides was not pulling his weight, unfortunately. So no insult to Eric, but I think he had a good time, and I, I was very, very happy that he came out and played because I was a little worried we weren't going to hit six. So uh, pick up Dune, pick up 1830. 1830 might be out of print at the moment. Uh, I think there's another one along the way. Don't pay too much money for it. Uh, these sorts of games always come back in print. If it doesn't, I'm sorry I lied to you. Uh, at the same time, if you see somebody who's got a copy of it, tell them to get it on the table, especially if they know how to play it. That's a big deal. And uh, in the dying moments of the show, I just want to quickly touch on the subject of how important it is to play some of these big games with people who know what they're doing. And I don't mean the sense that they're pros, because as, as many games of uh, Mega Civ as, as I've played, I would not call myself a pro. I just know mechanically how the game is supposed to be played. And from there, I can hopefully usher people into the greatness and the glory that is Advanced Civ, Mega Civ, Western Empires. 1830 is a game that I was dying to be taught by someone who knew how to play. But nobody I knew knew how to play except for some people in Toronto, and they haven't played one in a while. Or at least they haven't played one recently for us to sit down and watch how it's uh, played. And not even something exactly like 1830, because a lot of these games are different too. But if you know somebody who knows how to teach you these games and has a copy of them, don't hesitate to beg them to get it on the table because odds are they want to get it on the table too. And that's why it's taken me... When did I get 1830? Three years? Four years to get 1830 onto the table? It will happen, folks. It will happen. You just got to make it happen. (laughs) And the funny thing is that as dense as 1830 is, the only thing that I think would stop me from playing a game like this with my family is the time length because I think it would be very, very difficult to get my family to sit down and play a game this long for this amount of time. Even though I think if I begged them enough, I could probably trick them into playing that. So I could probably do a four-player game, get Kale to come out and uh, play 1830 with my parents. Um, I think my father would really enjoy it, even though I think he would find the stock market aspects of it um, underbaked because... Um, as somebody who knows the markets and uh, and has preconceived notions of how they should function, a lot of the mechanics of it, especially the buying part, having no effect on the stock market directly, would probably confuse him and lead to some maybe some head shaking down the line. 
But uh, in general, 1830 is not that complicated. It, it does take a bit of a table footprint, though, and I'm going to give you a heads up that um, what you want to do is you want to lay out all the tiles in their specific stacks ahead of time. We had ours in um, these absolutely gorgeous containers that uh, Jason manufactures himself. So I don't, I don't know the website, Jason, I'm sorry, or else I'd give a shout out to you. You can check him out. Uh, him and his father make these. He's got a booth at the Stone Road Mall, I believe, and uh, there might be, I think, at the Guelph Farmer's Market as well. You can buy these things here. That, uh, I don't know about those exactly, but other gorgeous woodworked... Is that, a, is that the right term? Woodworked <laughs> objects. We've got Scrabble tiles. Kayla has this lovely guitar pick case. So anyway, we had all, those t- uh, all our train tiles split up by color, but also in the... Um, in these containers when in reality they should be spread out on the table and that's going to suck up even more table footprint the charters are huge that's going to take table footprint Um, make sure you use poker chips that's one of these general uh, pieces of advice that people veterans will tell you because it speeds up the game i don't to be honest i'm not totally sure why it speeds up the game more than paper money i'd have to play with it more but they recommend using it paper or poker chips for uh, food chain magnet as well because it's just one of these games that again any game with paper money that you're trading frequently apparently poker chips are just easier to use they do feel nicer and they look way better too um, you will need a bunch though so don't uh, if you've got a sad little set don't waste people's time um, which reminds me I think I need to pick up more chips just to round out the uh, collection because we we're running out of uh, fives and w- fives and tens pretty frequently in our game. I don't even know if we had tens. Um, so this is the end of the show. I'm going to play us out with some music and uh, jump back in at the end. Thanks for listening. Yeah.
Just me, rambling about 1830 and Dune. What you just heard was Train Lawn Suffering by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds from... What is it, sophomore album? Second one? The Firstborn is Dead. Fantastic album. It's train-related, folks. It's that simple. Thank you for listening. Support the station. Check us out online, cfru.ca or Android's Dungeon on all your favorite podcast websites. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully you had a good time. Have a great rest of the week. Talk to you later.